Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. With me on the podcast this morning, I'm delighted and privileged to have two guests. Both of my guests are from the University of Newcastle Law School. Uh, first up, I have Professor Tania Selden with me, who is the Dean and the Head of the Law School, University of Newcastle, and she has been in that role since 2016. Uh, she has a uh, law degree and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of New South Wales. She's got an LLM and a PhD on conflict resolution from the University of Sydney. Her career is focused on justice, litigation, conflict avoidance and dispute resolution. Previously, Tania was the director of the Australian Centre for Justice Innovation at Monash University and she was in that role until 2011. She's held part-time senior tribunal appointments at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and Consumer Trader and Tenancy Tribunal for 20 plus years. She's trained judges. Uh, ADR, that's Alternative Dispute Resolution Practitioners, Lawyers and others uh, in relation to justice innovation, high conflict behaviour, mediation, ADR processes, negotiation and more. She's taught judges and programmes on court craft, court civil procedure, decision making, complex behaviour and judicial orientation programmes. She is the author of more than 135 books, articles and papers focused on justice reform issues, ADR, mediation, conflict resolution, collaboration, law, artificial intelligence, tech, organisational change. Her research projects have included into justice innovation in 14 courts and tribunals, six external uh, dispute resolution schemes. She's looked at how people experience courts and the justice processes, the cost, delay, etc., uh, she's influenced and led legislative reform. Past research projects have focused on innovation and in judging, timeliness, self-representing litigants, technology, justice, ADR, complaints handling. Her recent books include uh, Alternative Dispute Resolution, which was published in 2020. It's in its sixth edition, Justice Apps 2020, Judges and Technology. Welcome, Tania. How are you? That was such a long introduction. <laughs> well, well, I was going to say you, you you must be at least a hundred and five to have produced all that. Oh, I am. It's only you could see me. I'm doddering around with a walking stick in my office as we speak. <laughs> also in your office is Dr. Bin Lee, who is a senior lecturer at the University of New Newcastle Law School, where he specialises in law, science, technology, as well as space, maritime, aviation law. Prior to lecturing at Newcastle. Uh, Dr. Lee worked as an associate professor at Beijing University of Aeronautics and uh, Astronautics School of Law uh, in Beijing, uh, which of course is in China. Uh, since starting his uh, legal career in 2007, he's published nu numerous journal articles and chaired a plethora of research projects in the area, in the area of aerospace law. Uh, it was after moving to Australia that uh, Dr. Bin Lin Lee decided and began his research into a new domain being technology and justice. His work in this area seeks to shed greater light on how technologies such as artificial intelligence are used within the justice sector and how they impact dispute resolution processes. Um, as with uh, Professor Tania Selden, he's also uh, the other co-writer of the book on the uh, on that matter, which is uh, Digital Technology and Justice Apps. Um, good morning, Ben. How are you? 
Hi, Chris. I'm well, thank you. That that was a very nice introduction. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I'm just I'm so delighted to have you both on. I'm super excited about what we're going to discuss today. It's an area that I'm absolutely passionate about, um, mainly because it segues into uh, access to justice. I think. Uh, when we when we start focusing on putting resources and research and investment into um, matters, so, you know, and, into developments, innovation like justice apps, you know, we can really open up uh, access the doors of justice, access to justice to those that would otherwise um, be cut out of um, uh, that opportunity. So I'm really excited. I, I really am. Now, tell me. Um, which of I, I take? Oh, look, I, I, look! I'm not going to presume anything here. Um, uh, Newcastle. Who, who's lived in Newcastle the longest? Probably Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I commenced at um, Newcastle Law School early 2016, maybe a few months earlier than Tanya. Yes, basically in the same year. Now, look, uh, Newcastle is one of the very few uh, cities in Australia that I, I haven't been to. Um, I uh, lived and worked in, in Sydney for a bit, uh, and uh, I've just recently come back from uh, Hastings Point, which is very northern New South uh, Wales, but um, I've never been to Newcastle. Uh, so uh, maybe I could ask both of you, um, why don't I start off with you, Ben, what, what's your favourite thing about Newcastle? What do you love the most about it? Well, the beautiful weather here. Uh, and also we have a very prestigious binary area. Wow. Okay. Very close to Newcastle. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And Tania, what's, what, what do you love about Newcastle? Um, it's, a, it's a great city. It's a really good size. It's about 500,000, but more than a million, I suppose, in the hinterland. And it's all beaches on one side and, as Ben said, wineries on the other. So what's not to love? Quite an arty sort of innovative city as well. Okay. Um, going back to the law school, um, you know, roughly, do you, do you know the mix of law students that you've got at the school who are either, you know, Newcastle locals versus those that have come from out of town as such? Oh, look, I have to check on the stats. We, we have about 1,200 students in the law school, and I would say that probably about 60, 65% of them are local or within our immediate region. We do get uh, a number who'll come in because it's a bit of a university town at Newcastle. Oh, look, I mean, it sounds like a great place to be able to live and study. Um, uh, I mean, it just does really sound lovely. Let's talk about digital technology and justice apps. Uh, can I start with you, Ben? What sparked your interest in this area? Well, um, I commenced at um, Newcastle Law School in 2016 uh, and began teaching alternative dispute resolution uh, where you know technology um, has been um, introduced in dispute resolution processes. And I thought the um, interaction of technology and the DR processes are quite fascinating. And I um, have been very fortunate to have Tanya as my uh, colleague, um, who is an expert uh, on both DR processes and technology. So I started to work on this topic a few years ago. So, Ben, can I ask this? I mean, you, you've obviously got a background in... Uh, aerospace law, uh, astronautics, um, uh, and aeronautics. I mean, these are quite technical um, and you know technology 
you know, focused right. areas. Yeah, it, it, has that has, has that do you feel um, giving you a, a bit of a, a segue into uh, technology innovation and in, um, in, in the delivery of justice? Yeah, it does have um, a very positive um, sort of inspiration on my end. So um, since I was starting my um, career in China, um, you know, I, I found you know it's important for um, for people to understand the interaction between technology as a whole and also the justice system. So um, definitely, my experience in aerospace law and technology has. Um, you know, um, effect on my interest in justice and technology as well. Okay. Well, look, I'm now going to um, sort of pass over or jump over to, to you, Tania. What sparked your interest in this area? Uh, I was probably a pretty early um, tech adopter. And when I was a, a, an expert, uh, a legal expert for the Australian Law Reform Commission in the late 1990s, uh, we had a big inquiry on managing justice and improvements. And as part of that, uh, I contributed certainly to the writing of issues papers on uh, technology. And then in 2003 and 2007, I had two very large Australian Research Council grants, which um, really were considering um, ways in which you could set up AI systems uh, in relation to, if you like, litigated matters. And as a result of that, I, together with the uh, team that I was working with, built two systems uh, that were, I think, expert systems now rather than machine learning systems. But really, uh, you know, for many years now, I've actually worked quite a lot in the um, tech innovation space and certainly did also at Monash during my, my time. And uh, I've had a number of different projects over the years, uh, including a, a large uh, collaborative research network which involves about 120 scholars around the world who are really looking at uh, technology and the way that it will reshape the way that uh, courts function. Okay. Um, well, look, can I ask you, you both, I'll, I'll let you choose who wants to have a go at it first. What do you believe that technology can offer um, the, the justice system? What, 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 are, what is it capable of delivering, do you believe? Yeah, um I can start if that's okay. Um, so um, overall, technology has a very um, influential uh, effect on um, the delivery of justice services, I would say. So um, in terms of the um, access to justice, we know that you know the general public or um, specifically disputing parties, they require or they expect um, quick cheap and also just outcomes for their disputes. And in that sense, technology can definitely help achieve such a goal by uh, providing quicker and cheaper and, and equally justice um, to the uh, parties as well. So um, that's that's my general comment on this point. Tanya, your thoughts on that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think technologies can offer various things at different points of the justice system. And normally I sort of break up technological innovations, although there's, there's no bright line between each into supportive replacement and more disruptive technologies. 
and they can each of them offer opportunities in terms of reduction of cost and greater access uh, to people within the justice system if we're talking about humans. But there's also opportunities, I think, to have matters resolved through more sophisticated forms of AI if that is in fact what the litigants might want. Uh, and, and that might be the case in, under some circumstances where you're looking at reductions in time and cost. Okay. Well, look, let's break this down just a little bit um, and, and we'll go at it uh, at its most simple components. In any civilised society, there needs to be a mechanism for resolving disputes, whether those disputes are a, a civil dispute uh, or, or even a, a criminal matter. Okay. And uh, the, the, the dispute um, arises and, and, you know, there's always a, a time uh, equilibrium here. The dispute arises and at some point in time that dispute will be resolved. And generally speaking, there's three ways in which a dispute is resolved. If, if, if you just, and we'll just keep it simple, you've got two parties, um, you know, whether that's a, a plaintiff defendant, whether it's a prosecutor de- defendant scenario. Um, one way that it can be resolved is that the, the party who's bringing the, the proceedings, whether it's civil or criminal, withdraws them, okay, or, or, or you know, effectively packs up their tent and, and goes away. So, so that's one way. The, the second way it can, uh, a dispute can be resolved is, is by agreement. Now, um, obviously, civil matters, that's a bit more straightforward. Criminal, a little bit more complicated, but, um, you know, you, you do have examples of agreements, whether it's a, you know, it's a plea bargain scenario, um, a defendant accepts a plea, or, you know, or there's an, a, um, some other arrangement that, that brings the dispute to an earlier resolution than it may have. And then, generally speaking, the, the third way in which a dispute is resolved is that a, a third party uh, hands uh, the disputing parties a, a resolution. Um, now, that could be in the, the form of a judge handing a, a civil judgment down or uh, a judge uh, or a jury putting a verdict in and then a, a judge sentencing a, um, a, a defendant scenario. Um, so you've got those those three ways. Now, if we deal with... Um, uh, that last process, and that is really the the sharp end of the justice system, and that is where uh, the parties are, are handed a resolution. Uh, the start to finish process can be quite long, and uh, while that's going on, uh, the, there's a, there's a lot of cost, it's, and it's just not financial. There's distress and anguish and anxiety for for those that are involved in that process until till there's a resolution. Um, do you see that, uh, would I be correct, that what both of you are focusing on is how technology can make that pathway to resolution more efficient so that it, the resolution occurs quicker with less impact on those involved and less cost. Uh, am I summing that up right, or am I missing something? I think that's that's correct. We're, we're really looking at all those three different ways of finalising a dispute. I think the the statistics of what actually happens in courts are a bit vague, and sometimes courts don't really know themselves. But you're right that 
at points people um, withdraw, and at other points people simply give up because it's too it's too costly and it's too time intensive or, or for some other reason. And so what we're really interested in is the way in which people, if you like, seek justice and how they can be triaged <coughs> effectively so that they can form an agreement if they wish to so that they're not necessarily giving up for financial reasons, but they're actually giving up because they've had some access to some advice and at least it's a smart decision that they've made. Yeah, Yeah, and look, access to justice is critically important. I mean, we don't want to have a scenario where... You know, members of our society go, well, well, well look, I, I don't have access to justice, so I'm, I'm going to go down to the local gang and pay them to give me some form of a sense of justice. Um, or um, just live with the, the resentment that of the grievance that was never addressed because they couldn't access some practical, meaningful uh, way towards a resolution. And in my experience, often... For a lot of litigants, just getting a resolution, it may not be the one that they wanted, is actually enough for them to be able to accept the resolution and move on with their life rather than having it occupy and eat them up. I think that's probably a fair summary. There is also some work from um, uh, Associate Professor Genevieve Grant at Monash who's done work suggesting that um, for litigants in civil matters where it's a a difficult matter that stretches on for a number of years. They're actually at much greater risk of um, having cancer and also suffering from mental illnesses. So the, the other reality is that sometimes litigation can actually make you sick. So the the need to have something which is timely is important, not just because of the, the cost savings um, and the stress, but in fact prolonged litigation can actually make you sick. Okay, and of course, you know, we'd all love a justice system that was uh, swift um, and, and inexpensive. But is there a, a potential conflict with the with one of the main goals of a justice system, and that is to produce, you know, when the parties can't reach an agreement, to produce accurate judgments. You know, so so judgments that are that are sound. And um, don't, for example, get overturned on appeal, you know, uh, every day of the week scenario. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, you know, there has been some sort of um, criticisms on um, the use of some technologies in the justice system. Um, and there has been some claims saying, for example, um, through the dispute resolution processes, um, not to the litigation, then the outcome may not be as just as um, a judgment delivered by judges. But there are several pieces there. For example, um, as Tanya pointed out, um, you know, firstly, a prolonged litigation process has a very negative effect on um, the clients, either financially or mentally, you know, um, almost across um, every aspect. And, and another thing is that, um, you know, if parties are engaging in a dispute resolution processes, say negotiation and mediation, but if they can access sufficient and correct legal information where technology can help, for example, uh, there are a lot of legal application softwares available for general public to access legal information so that they can uh, have a better understanding of their um, disputes and then to position them 
um, you know, um, in a much better way uh, and to um, deal with the dispute, then that could be a really good um, and quicker um, sort of process for these parties to work out resolution uh, for themselves instead of um, instead of uh, going to court, which is uh, rather um, very um, you know tearing and stressful process. So from that point of view, actually, um, you know, we, we could say um, technology and also the dispute resolution processes are helping um, to achieve um, the justice outcome. Well, look, let's do a little bit of a dive into technology, and, and maybe it might be a good thing if we do a little bit of a review of where we were, where we are, and where we're going. So um, let's take your classic courtroom scenario. Now, for better or for worse, uh, we've had this adversarial system, and, and look, and I know that uh, some different uh, areas of the law um, adopt uh, parts of the European system of inquisitorial um, justice, but we'll just deal with the adversarial, the adversarial model. Uh, we have a courtroom uh, which will be located in a, a, a town centre. Uh, we have a legal profession who um, have a right of audience, um, etc. And then we then we have our, our our citizens who who need to get access to justice. So a uh, proceedings are commenced. Uh, it works its way uh, through, and then. Finally, at some stage, it's in front of a judge. And once upon a time, uh, and, and we'll just say in the purely uh, analogue age, uh, the lawyers would uh, present their their arguments to the judge uh, or to the jury. Uh, there, there, there wouldn't be any technology in the courtroom as such. Someone would be taking notes. Uh, and uh, then a decision would be handed down um, and, and then maybe um, uh, written up at some point in time. So that's the the rough historical model that we've you know that we, that existed for you know pretty much 350 years because we're you know our justice system of course has been implanted in Australia and New Zealand from the UK, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, then uh, the digital age arrived uh, and we started having uh, for example um, transcription in court uh, and that gave uh, lawyers and the parties access to the to the record. Um, of the evidence that was being given and, you know, computers uh, meant that the production of paper, so a lot more paper than there ever was once they came along because the word processor meant you could produce lots of paper, but still um, very much in the in the courtroom. Uh, and then sort of pre-pandemic, uh, there was a, a, a small move, and I'm interested, this is the area that I'm particularly interested in, in getting both of you to contribute on, is the move towards having uh, virtual hearings. And when I say that, that's where one or more participants didn't actually have to be physically in the courtroom. And both in Australia and New Zealand, legislation was passed, you know, going back now, in a couple, you know, nearly two decades, to enable the courts to have a, a witness who, who might be overseas or, or at a distance or be at risk, giving evidence remotely, but it still wasn't really being embraced by the judiciary or the profession. Um, but this pandemic uh, certainly has led to uh, a significant uptake. And, I, and if we just use that as one area of technology that is giving access to justice, um, where do you see the future of remote hearings 
going and, and people being able to participate remotely. They don't have to go into a courtroom and physically be there. Um, I, I think that <clears throat> what you've outlined is really interesting, Chris, in terms of that background and that development of trial by trolley. And uh, I, I think we do have to remember that, um, you know, even work that I've done here shows that only about one and a half percent of civil cases in the um, in the Supreme Courts in New South Wales and Victoria actually end up in a hearing. So, okay. Well, case- what, what do you what, what does that what does that tell you, and what and, and what's what's your reaction to that statistic? Well, I, I built as part of a, a team a couple of years ago a web crawler that looked at those cases to try and find out what the characteristics were of the cases that actually ended up in hearing, and I would have to say that. Most of them are aberrant in that they're unusual. They have characteristics where there's often high levels of behavioural complexity or there's high levels of task complexity. And that's an interesting finding from a a tech perspective because if you use um, those cases and those decisions to inform a machine learning um, model, then you're actually going to have major problems because the data is you know aberrant as I said it's inaccurate. Um, what it tells me though, and sort of coming back to your question around virtual hearings and the shift towards more virtual hearings over the COVID era, <clears throat> I think this is very interesting because it's in conflict with um, part of what uh, is an objective of justice um, in most um, Western systems, which relates to sort of having an open and transparent process and. Sometimes virtual hearings are not open or transparent. And, you know, sometimes you'll have an audio record and sometimes you've got a YouTube um, reporting, but then there's issues with that as well because you, you then create a whole a whole group of what I'd call celebrity judges and you could see it with a deaf and heard hearing. But th- th- there are other issues as well. Um, I think the shift to the... Her Majesty's online courts in the UK, where really they've sold off many of the um, many of the courts that exist in small towns, and the intention was to replace them with online courts, really hasn't worked very effectively. And I think the research that's coming out now suggests that, um, in fact, you've got um, less access to justice than you did in the past because for middle class people who've got a home with a good internet connection. Um, then accessing technology uh, and using that technology to connect to a court system can actually work quite well. But if you um, don't have a great internet connection and you don't have a home where you can actually do that, then it's much more problematic. So there's still a digital divide that operates, and I think that's something that has to be considered in the in the context of that broader redesign issue. For many people, it's going to be, yes, more convenient to be able to sit at home and to be able to access uh, a court hearing in that way. Again, the downsides relate to the open and transparency piece, um, perhaps a potentially loss of respect for courts. And I think there's bigger issue around the still remaining digital divide that exists. Now, so, the, the digital divide's a, a, a topic. It's actually um, um, uh, features uh, as a major part of one of your chapters in your in your book, uh, Digital Technology and Justice. You talk about the digi- digital divide and accessibility. I mean, this is clearly a, a, a potential a problem, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a diminishing problem though, in a sense. And I think um, you know one thing that has really happened over the COVID era, I think, in many countries, is that 
Uh, smartphone use, of course, has increased. And in some countries like China, you can run a court hearing from beginning to end. And I'm sure Ben could talk more about that entirely on your smartphone. And those folks who we thought perhaps were excluded from, uh, if you like, using technology because of the digital divide uh, can now actually do quite a lot <clears throat> on a smartphone. And I was thinking in particular of elderly people who ordered things online during lockdown and who've learned in many places to use QR codes and suddenly you've got people who are doing things online who, who weren't perhaps doing things online two and a half years ago. Yeah, no, look, really, really interesting. Look, um, we've talked about hearings and, and I do accept that there are certain hearings that to, to, to really do, you know, for justice to be done, it, it, it needs to be in person, okay? And, you know, I'm thinking like serious criminal trial um, and uh, the importance that the defendant feels that he or she have, has had a fair hearing, the, the importance for the victims to feel that um, uh, there has been a, a proper thorough investigation um, and consideration of, of the issues. Um, but in some other areas, perhaps the trade-off is worth it um, not to have you know, an in-person hearing, um, but the trade-off being the speed and, and, and the reduction in cost means the parties are going to get a get an outcome, which for some parties they may never have got anyway if it had been that more traditional analogue, you know, uh, 19th century approach to, to dispute resolution. What do you think about that? Mm. Yeah, I, th I think that's an interesting observation, Chris. I mean... Um, well, if, let me just get back a little bit on um, the criminal context. So um, in relation to the um, potential effect of a virtue or remote hearing, there has been some studies showing that um, it may be that there is a disadvantage against the offenders because without the in-person engagement or interaction with judges, um, offenders may be sort of um, disadvantaged in terms of um, being biased um, because there is a lack of empathy uh, from the uh, part of the judges. But, um, you know, as I said, there are some sort of studies like that, but uh, there are also uh, studies um, directing um, to the other way, meaning that, um, you know, some studies show actually judges do not have that sort of um, a bias against the offenders, even though in a virtue hearing. So it's hard to say. And and um, and also, um, this is about the criminal um, background. If we go to another level of the use of technology, saying if we move away from the online um, hearing and then think about from the perspective of the judges, especially in some jurisdictions like in China, judges' workload actually is very heavy. And um, with some of the technologies, mainly artificial intelligence, judges', judges workload could be um, significantly alleviated by using some artificial intelligence assistance system. For example, um, back in China, again, um, you know, um, such AI systems have been uh, employed in some of the courts to help judge 
uh, draft some, um, you know, judgment. So this is totally, you know, um, separate to the online, online or, or remote hearing. But I, my, the, the point that I wanted to make is that, um, you know, not only on the level of uh, virtual hearing, but also in another higher level of um, the, the technology uptake, uh, there are some opportunities um, for technology to help. Um, not only the parties, but also um, but also the judges. Now, I'd like to talk to you both uh, about you know justice apps um, um, in practice uh, because your book does uh, focus on. Um, there's a chapter justice apps in context where you, you look at family law. But before we get uh, before I ask you about that, and, and and while we're still on the topic of of the criminal jurisdiction, and, and possibly we're technology can assist in, in those areas of addressing those concerns of cost, delay and access. Um, as we know, and, and most of the listeners will know, um, one of the large uh, contributors to delay and cost is case management. And, and that is, you know, civil proceedings are filed or a charge is filed and, and there can be a long period of time until there's a hearing and, and decision. And, and in the meantime, the, the, the courts and the lawyers involved will be working to get the, the case ready for hearing. So you've got this case management process. And, uh, you know, one part of that is uh, are these case management conferences, whether they're... Um, in the civil jurisdiction or the criminal jurisdiction and what will happen in many jurisdictions is that the, the lawyers will, on a, on a given day, front up to court and go into a courtroom where, where their matter is listed for mention. And so a judge is going to, to ask the lawyers about where they're at with uh, getting ready for trial. I'll just keep it at a real basic level. And, and often those, those, those duty judge days um, it's not just the parties to that one dispute, the, or should I say the lawyers to, that are acting on that one dispute that are in court. The, the, there might be 50 other lawyers in there because there are 25 other matters in the list. And uh, each of these 50 lawyers have all um, travelled from their offices to the courthouse and they'll sit in a courtroom and they'll wait for their matter to be called. And they might wait for two or three hours and when their matter's called, uh, it might only occupy, you know, I mean, maybe this is a bit extreme to say, 30 seconds of judicial time. And then they'll um, uh, excuse themselves and they'll head back to their office. In the meantime, um, yep, they can be on their phones doing a bit of work or maybe their laptop, but it's a very inefficient process. Um, there, there must be a, a technical solution to that to make sure that lawyers' time is more efficiently used um, so that those 50 lawyers aren't all sending bills to their clients for, for what was really about maybe a few minutes of actual value add. I mean, is there a, is there a solution to that issue? I think definitely there is, and that's a really good example of the sorts of work that I think can be conducted online uh, and relatively easily. I mean, there is a question about the extent to which it's really required to even have an online 
appearance if it's um, so brief and whether or not it's in fact something that can be handled or managed in another way. Uh, I mean, I think it's more likely that what we'll see is a mixed mode developing where you've got a lot of interlocutory matters that are dealt with on an online basis. Part of a hearing might be a virtual hearing and part of it might be a face-to-face hearing. And it's really a question about making a decision in each matter which is going to be appropriate for the individual circumstances and context. Uh, I do agree with your comments about how there are some criminal matters where um, it, it would never be desirable to have an online hearing. And I, I, I wrote a, a, an article uh, called Death Sentencing via Zoom expressing my concerns around uh, at least two death sentences that were handed down <coughs> via Zoom, which I was really troubled about. So I think I think there are problems. And then there's also a question of what do you lose if you uh, don't have in-person interactions. And one of the things that you do lose uh, is the sort of incidental conversations that happen when people meet in person. And they sometimes result in the settlement of a case in that people will have a, a conversation about the weather or the coffee and they build trust and build collegiality. And you don't have the same sort of incidental discussions uh, generally over Zoom or via Teams or whatever platform is being used. There's a probably a third um, sort of matter that I'd, I'd raise as well just in the criminal area, and that is in relation to restorative and therapeutic justice processes. Uh, the opportunities, I think, are reduced when you're reduced to a small size postage stamp um, size person on a screen. And there are issues with how people perceive one another and the extent to which there can, in fact, be an uh, empathetic interaction uh, when you don't actually look at the camera, you're trying to look at the screen or you're looking somewhere else and people are often multitasking. So the big question is, um, I think, how do you triage effectively? Um, You know, what are the triage questions that you ask? And really apps can help with that triaging and also with building a, a, a framework which represents the ethical values that we want to have existing within the justice system. Look, you're absolutely right. Um, if we take a, the scenario, a very sad scenario of a parent who's just lost a child, maybe in a, in a drink driving uh, scenario, uh, you know, they're going to want to face the offender um, who's been found guilty and let them know what the impact has been on them. And they'll want to face them in person. They're not going to want to look up at a screen and say, you know, you, you, you've you destroyed my life um, through your senseless, stupid judgment. Um, you know, it, it, these, these aren't appropriate matters for a, a digital um, platform or, or solution. So maybe it's uh, – do you think it's an issue of – of getting the balance right. There, there must be a balance to be struck between uh, our traditional in-person ways with um, what technology can offer. Yeah, I think it is getting the balance right. And then there are questions of, um, you know, are there circumstances where you would always have um, a, a human hearing? I'm not sure about the drink driving one because I think it's very much a a question around um, what the victim in these circumstances might prefer. And under some circumstances, I mean, if I look at a country like Australia where you're talking very long geographical distances to get to a court in some in some circumstances, um, where the victim themselves might be quite unsupported and in quite a foreign and unusual place, then, then they may actually prefer that, that it is an online interaction 
um, where they have their family and other supporters around. So I, I think it's a, a question where you can't say never and it's really a question of saying, okay, well, what are the questions that uh, you need to ask and how can, for example, an app help with these triage questions and help to make sure that the process is as effective as it possibly can be? Oh, look, you're absolutely right. I've got a, a matter coming up for sentencing, uh, a tragedy for everyone involved. I'm acting for the defendant. Um, the, the victim suffered a, a horrific head injury, which has uh, will have ongoing effects for the rest of his, his life. Uh, but he's been taken back to his home in the UK. His family, who have to care for him, are in the UK, uh, they're going to participate in the sentencing remotely. And, and that makes sense because, you know, to travel all the way from the United Kingdom here down under uh, for a sentencing hearing that may last only an hour um, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So you are absolutely right. I think it all depends on the circumstances. Yeah, that's right. Another example probably is about the um, disputes in relation to domestic violence where, uh, you know, the victim may not um, want to uh, face the, the offenders uh, in person. So in that scenario, it may be that online or remote hearing um, would be a, a good option. And also, um, go back to your um, point about the case management, Chris. I think in, in addition to the perspective of the court, and also from the uh, perspective of legal profession, like the law firm, um, there has been some report um, saying that during the pandemic, there is an increasing uptick of um, some you know, legal software, what we call the uh, legal task management software, where the law firms can actually uh, track the cases that um, you know, um, they are helping their client ways so that they, ha- they, they would have a better understanding of, uh, you know, what steps uh, need to be need to be uh, taken uh, down the track for uh, any given cases. So definitely, you know, uh, case management is an area where, um, you know, such application uh, softwares can help as well. Well, well, look, it's a huge area and and, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a multi-billion dollar area. I mean, these... Legal practice management and case management uh, software platforms, uh, of which there are many across the world, um, uh, are tapping into you know uh, the, the the legal industry, and uh, you know they're, they're making you know I don't I don't know how much money they make. It's going to cost a lot of money to to develop them and keep them developed, but it's certainly an area in which um, the legal profession uh, looks totally different than what it did 20 years ago. Um, it, and, and, and the legal profession will look tw- different again in another 20 years as these uh, software development companies invest more money into the legal profession to help with practice management and case management. Look, can we, can we move on to, uh, because it is addressed in your book and I'm quite interested to, to dive into this, insofar as it gives a good snapshot and an and example of an area of the law that affects you know, many in our community, and that's family law. Um, your your book talks about uh, justice apps and family law and dispute resolution. You know, what can you tell us about that? 
Um, well, uh, part of the reason why we wrote the book was because um, we had done an evaluation of a, an app that had been developed in Australia. And there are now many, many apps in Australia um, and elsewhere which are focused on, if you like, supporting people who have family law disputes. And so it, it's an area of focus, I think, increasingly around the world. And some of the apps are pretty simple and they just help parents work out, for example, um, how they're going to um, share care of children and how they timetable matters. But the the, the app that I was looking at, the Adieu app, which uh, I think was really interesting from an evaluation perspective, um, what it does is that you you do everything basically on your smartphone and they have a, a if you like, a, a voice-to-text um, tool in there so that um, when you give information, it's actually used to uh, populate court documents that could be used further down the track. And it sets up a time frame and then there's a lot of referral to humans throughout the process as well. And the referral to humans um, takes place in quite a friendly way so that depending on your circumstances, you could, for example, be referred out to somebody who's an expert in superannuation or you could be referred out to a mediator or if you need to have um, parental advice about something to do with the children, then you could be referred out. And uh, I tried out the app and I actually was surprised that it, it worked as well as it did. And I was also quite surprised with the app um, that quite a number of the people who were using the app were older. I thought that it would really only suit people under 40, but in fact there were quite a lot of people who were older who were using it. That's an example of, I suppose, the developments in that family court context in that you've got more sensitive triage, you've got um, ways in which uh, things are managed and followed up, and they have a whole series of um, add-ons one of the add-ons is uh, uh, basically where each person gives access to all of the bank accounts and financial records and so does the other person in the relationship. And then what happens is that uh, essentially the form of AI um, gets all of that documentation and uh, indexes it and puts it in a form so that it's, it's easy to understand it and um, also is able to sort of put together budget predictions in terms of, uh, you know, how much would be left to buy another house or to uh, rent so that when the household is separated out, there's a fairer distribution of assets. I think these developments are really interesting because when I um, looked at lawyer uh, comments about that, they were extremely positive in that lawyers would say, look, it used to take us about six months of sending PDF documents backwards and forwards to create the same sort of, um, you know, picture of the financial uh, contributions and circumstances. And now it's 15 minutes through a form of AI. So they're the sorts of areas where you look at real cost savings, I think, and ways in which, uh, you know, things can be better organised without having to have to rely on um, human labour. They're sometimes tough, but are pretty repetitive and boring for lawyers anyway. Look, that, that's actually fascinating and a great example. Um, I'll make sure that I put it in the listening notes for this episode of the podcast, but for the, the listeners, um, I, th- I think you said it's the Adure app. How, how, do you, how do you spell that? Adieu, which is A-D-I-E-U. Fantastic. Okay, so will people will be able to Google that. And, yeah, they, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a number. The Australian government also builds another app and um, it was really intended to give people an idea about what a court decision was going to do in relation to assets 
And the, the point that I made earlier about aberrant outcomes when matters go to a hearing is, is also true in the family law area in that you tend to get people with more high-conflict characteristics who actually end up in a hearing, at, uh, you know, a full hearing in the family court context. So the way in which the government moved around that was by also reviewing uh, data from legal aid files. And so you had a broader pool of data that you could look at. And I think these are interesting measures. It's about, you know, what is fair and how do you advise people so that they can have settlement conversations and they get a, a view which is apart from the view that they might have as lawyers. And the reality in Australia and probably in New Zealand as well is that uh, many people in a family law uh, context uh, don't have lawyers, uh, can't afford lawyers. And so there's a pool of people, if you like, who are uh, self-represented, um, who really have a lot of difficulty trying to work their way through the system. And look, there, there is the, um, I mean, it's not always a problem, but there is the problem of the self-represented litigant who can uh, end up taking up a lot of uh, court and judicial time because they're not represented. So it creates this kind of vicious circle uh, in a way where um, the cost of resolution is being moved um, uh, onto the court system itself and uh, there will be incidents where it just would have been cheaper for the community to have made sure that that person had access to a lawyer rather than uh, utilising what is a a finite resource um, uh, in the court system. But um, look, yeah, just dealing with um, family law, and and if I understand, um, uh, Tania, and you've been both from this, if you take the classic scenario, and I'll just give a, a real simple scenario so that so that the listeners are clear on this, and I, just, and I also want to make sure that I've got this right, because I haven't looked at this app, but I, I'm certainly going to look it up. You have a couple, they've been together, let's just say they've been together for seven years, okay? There's no children. Okay, and in the course of the seven years, they've they've bought a house together, which has been the the, the family home. Uh, it's got a mortgage. Um, there is a bit of equity in there. Uh, they've gone and bought all the normal assets that a couple would. You know, they've they've they got their televisions. They've got a car each. Um, uh, they've fitted out their house, um, and you know, one of them may have been able to divert because they earned a bit more money to towards retirement and superannuation, etc. Uh, but, you know, they've decided that their relationship has uh, run its course and it's time to bring it to an end. Uh, and then they've got to divide up their, their relationship property. So they both go to lawyers and under the, you know, the, I'll say the old system or probably still the more common system, I think you mentioned, uh, each lawyer would ask their respective clients, um, one of the partners to this relationship, you know, here's, here's a form I want you to fill out and it's it, I want you to list all the assets and all the liabilities so that we can work out uh, what the, 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 the gross and the net value of the relationship property is. And, and you're going to be entitled to, and, and I'm simplifying things here for, for, for listeners, you're going to be entitled to 50% of, um, uh, of your relationship property. So both lawyers would go through that process with their clients, they'd exchange that, and, and hopefully they'd reach an agreement and, and then they're able to draw up a division. And it may be that one of the partners wants to keep the house and there has to be an equalisation payment, all of those things. A- am I understanding you that this app helps automate that process somewhat so that you know both parties can put in their inputs as to what they say 
the assets and the liabilities are and, and, and the corresponding values of, of, of those items. Yes, uh, pretty much I think that's the case. I mean, the, the if you like, robot, which is really a chatbot, is called Lumi, and that chatbot has capacity for voice-to-text as well so that you don't even have to fill out forms necessarily. You might just be able to speak it, which is actually quite useful. Um, and I think the, the question there, I think, for lawyers is the extent to which there could be unbundled legal advice. So you might not have a lawyer there from beginning to end, but you might have a lawyer at those critical points where you need legal advice about, for example, whether the um, the potential agreement is fair and what sort of orders need to be sought from the court and to check over any documentation rather than necessarily having the lawyers right from the beginning. And so there are questions around how legal services will operate within that sort of framework. Yeah. Um, the Australian Productivity Commission, I think occasionally they look at uh, the, the legal profession and justice. Uh, have, have either of you had any um, involvement with the Commission in, in, in some of their work? Uh, I've had extensive involvement. Um, so in uh, 2014, when they did their big review, I, I think they referred to me quite a lot because I um, gave evidence on five separate occasions to the Productivity Commission. And I think, you know, they were really looking to see how the justice system could be improved. And I think they they noted and certainly were aware that many of the courts operating in Australia have, have what I would call legacy technology systems. They're pretty clunky and they're quite hard to build on and they're also inwardly focused. And so some of the focus for reform into the future is to build, if you like, case management systems that are much more outwardly focused. And so the work in the um, US is often around reform so that it is much easier to access information and so that the platforms work in a way so that they're engaging and easy to use. And you know, there's questions around interoperability, although the Productivity Commission didn't go quite so far. That's the capacity of systems to talk to one another very easily. Um, and so I think these are all important reform measures, but they, they haven't really, I think, been followed up in terms of that Productivity Commission report. Is there a risk here that resources are being put into reinventing the wheel or solving a problem that's already been solved? Where I'm getting to with this is Australia and New Zealand are uh, you know, part of a, a long and celebrated um, uh, justice system. Um, uh, there are other members of the Commonwealth, you know, there's the United Kingdom itself, and I, I think, Tony, you'd mentioned um, some, uh, I guess, trials or experiments in the UK with closing down small courthouses, et cetera. It, it seems to me, is there, is there a, would there be benefit in someone, um, whether it's both of you or, or other academics, looking at what's happening in other jurisdictions and trying to assess and pulling out what works and what's good and advocating for something to be replicated and used here down under in Australia and New Zealand? I think there's definite benefit, and there are, I think you're quite correct, different approaches around the world. And in a sense, the approach in um, the UK was really quite radical, I think, or it was intended to be radical, and there's been a lot of pushback, and I think it's been managed fairly poorly. And then you've got approaches like in Canada with the um, 
CRT, which is a completely online tribunal. And what they've really done in some places is they've they've kind of bypassed the courts and set up a new tribunal, which is completely online, understanding that sometimes uh, courts and judges aren't necessarily innovation ready. And then again, you've got different responses in the US where you've got, as I said, this more of a focus on how do you change courts in a much more sort of incremental way. So you've got the more radical reform and then the more incremental reform measures. And then you've got jurisdictions like Singapore, which, uh, you know, is investing huge amounts of money in terms of artificial intelligence and also China that's been mentioned earlier. And so having an overview of these kind of developments around the world, I think, is really critical in terms of making policy decisions about justice reform into the future. Now, um, that's a really... Um, yeah, sorry, Ben, you go. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I just wanted to have a quick comment. That is, yeah. um, technology does bring a lot of opportunities for the justice system, but also there are a lot of uh, issues or emerging issues um, contradicting to our traditional perceptions of justice. Um, you know, as, as we briefly mentioned uh, in our podcast today, um, you know, uh, whether... Um, you know, uh, AI-assisted decision-making would be a, a, a real just outcome or things like that. So uh, we have to say there must be a fine line to be walked down or, or some trade-offs to be made uh, with caution. Yes. Uh, look, look, if we go back to the family court, uh, um, this is one area where it's all very well the family court uh, handing a, a resolution to the parties. Um, but if one or both of the parties don't accept that, then you, you've got this uh, risk of an appeal and, and that takes up more time, delay, resources and distress. And, and then you've got the, the worst scenario and that is a, a party or both parties say, well, I'm just not going to comply with it. Um, so we've, we've got the issue of uh, the respect uh, for the court system and, and in particular the judges um, is there a, a real risk or is this an issue that if we go too far in some areas with uh, taking the human element out of it, that there will be a reduction in the respect for the office of the court? I think without a doubt that is an issue and it's one of the reasons why if you were looking at categories of cases that might not be appropriate, for a, a fully online uh, treatment, you, you probably exclude a lot of criminal and family law cases. <clears throat> I think for that very reason, in that um, you know something happens when you've got a human interaction, and if you were looking at, for example, recidivism in the context of criminal cases, then you, you may want to look at a whole range of um, different exchanges that happen when people are in person in a court arrangement and the same sort of thing I think in relation to family court matters and I think the big issue in relation to a lot of family court matters is that people just keep coming back to court because there's you know orders as you said that are, are breached or, or not followed or um, you know it's really it becomes almost like a, a systemic abuse issue that can happen as well in, in terms of this kind of tit for tat arrangement that might happen. So it, it is complex, and I think uh, you're right that we need to consider all of these questions when we look at, you know, how do we make a decision in an individual case? And without doubt, you want to look at what the litigant preferences are. For example, if the litigants both have a preference for a, a fully online hearing 
or even some form of supportive judge AI or some form of AI which can support their decision-making, then I think that makes an enormous difference um, rather than shunting everything into, uh, you know, what might be technologies that really aren't appropriate given the context. Look, absolutely. And, of course, you know, we've got a long history of... um the development of natural justice and and the role that it plays. Um, if I go back to a point that um, I think, Tani, you might have made before about um, uh, innovation, I think you said, well, you, you were talking about policy, influencing policymakers, but you said um, innovation um, uh, readiness. Um, is part of that or a related concept um, innovative um, reluctance, and that is the reluctance of someone to consider or adopt innovation? I think without a doubt. Um, and it, it's it's interesting, I think, about, uh, I mean, I call it innovation readiness. Sometimes it's innovation reluctance. And um, from a judicial perspective, and I work with judges around the world, and I've got a big international survey currently underway with judges in respect of um, their views about technology and their views around what's happened uh, over the COVID period. I think for many judges, it's it's all seen as just being a bit too difficult and not necessarily something where they're going to engage with questions of uh, reform for the future. Uh, and that's to do with the demographics um, to some extent of our judges. I think some judges are very interested, um, but some judges less so. And, uh, you know, they prefer a traditional way of operating because that's what they've grown up with and they've been in the system for a while. And I have noticed a bit of a difference in Europe where I think, uh, you know, judges are appointed very early in their career. Um, you know, they're, they're basically appointed from law school and then go to um, judicial school and then gradually climb the ranks. And I think there may be uh, a greater acceptance of innovation and what technology can bring to a courtroom. Uh, there are issues with lawyers, though, and certainly over the COVID period. I had terrible stories about lawyers not not being able to mute their phone, so they'd put it in a drawer um, and really having a lot of difficulty. And I, I, I still mediate, and I noticed that with some of the mediations as well that um, for some of the lawyers, at least initially, um, it was really hard for them to understand how to operate in a virtual manner. Um, so I, I think there's a fair bit of work that still needs to be done for judges and lawyers. And I say that because I don't necessarily think that the litigants aren't innovation ready and that I think many of the litigants are really quite sophisticated in terms of their understandings of technology. It, it sounds like this is almost a, a generational issue. And, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, the the, the, the graduate lawyers who are starting this year um, going into into firms or joining the profession, you, it, throughout their entire lives, smartphones have existed. Um, so they've grown up not knowing a world before smartphones. But but these young lawyers aren't the ones that are sitting around the table. They don't have a place in the table necessarily when it comes to setting policy for innovation. The, those places tend to be occupied with uh, older generations who possibly lament um, uh, the, the pace and development of technology uh, and maybe even see it as a threat. 
I, I think that's probably the case. I mean, there's lots of reasons why it's a good thing that we are, I think, conservative to some extent around justice arrangements because it's a very protective uh, piece. However, at the same time, uh, without a doubt, if you're having the policy agenda being run by uh, an older group of people who are disinterested in technology, then it's pretty problematic. It's not a yeah. necessarily a bad thing to be very cautious or sometimes conservative in this regard because mm-hmm. there are so many um, issues that we don't have a full understanding at this stage and we need to do more research uh, like the potential um, potential issues associated with the use of different types of technologies, particularly artificial intelligence and algorithms and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's. I would say it should be a you know a, a gradual process rather than um, a radical one. Although in some jurisdictions, as mentioned by Tanya, um, there are some very quick reforms have been made um, to adopt the um, artificial intelligence. Um, and look, I, I also think that a problem that we have as a profession is that uh, we've all been through the same training. We all went to law school, okay, and then many of us went into law firms and and we followed that. We we were taught by other lawyers. Um, But these are issues that go beyond law. Um, These are when we talk about technology because these are areas that as lawyers we don't have the training in or the skill set in and maybe we need to accept that that is a, a, an area, you know, weakness might not be the right way of describing it, but we, we need to bring others in to the tent or around the table who have that skill set and that knowledge to be able to educate and illuminate, shed light on what the capabilities are and how that might translate into meeting the objectives of um, reducing cost, delay, and improving access to justice. So that's an interesting observation because um, I think I think your comment is is also related to the legal education uh, for the future lawyers. Like mm. um, at the law school, um, you know, uh, here in, in Newcastle, we have offered a number of courses in relation to legal design, um, justice in, innovation, stuff like that. And the purpose of that is to provide our current students some ideas around the technological advances and their impact on their future career or, or, or you know, um, or the legal reform down the track. So, um, but again, you know, um, overall, in relation to the technology and justice we are still in a very um, inception um, stage, I would say. So there are so many things that we need to we need to learn and also to think about so that we can better inform our students into the future. You know, Ben, I'm delighted to hear that because I have heard um, criticisms of law schools that they they aren't preparing law students for modern legal practice, and, and they're not preparing them um, to you know, contribute to the, the development and the innovation um, and the growth of, of the profession um, because some law schools, and, I, and I'm, I, this certainly isn't directed at Newcastle, it sounds that you're actually the opposite, are still very much wedged in uh, the traditional model of here is legal precedent, this is how you understand it and these are how principles are applied. 
etc. Um, now, you did mention before legal design. Um, now, I can't remember her name, but there is a professor at Harvard University who's running a centre on legal design. And this is something that, that I've been quite interested in, in in terms of how legal design, the role it could play in access to justice. So is, is that something that Newcastle's looking at as well? Yes, um, and uh, we sent two of our staff back in 2019 to do the Stanford um, legal design. Sorry, course. you're right, it is Stanford. I, it was one of the yeah. Ivy League schools. I couldn't remember which one it is, but it is Stanford. So yep. Professor Lisa Tui. Yes. within our law school, has looked yep. extensively at legal design. Mm. <clears throat> I, I prefer to sort of talk about human-centred design rather than user-centred design only mm. because we need to make sure that it's actually focusing on everybody in the community, including those who are perhaps outside of the court system at the moment. But it's this kind of thinking that really should be informing reforms into the future you know, what, what is the system supposed to be? What are the underlying values and objectives? Um, you know, how can it actually work from a, a human perspective rather than just considering sort of little uh, bolt-on reforms here and there um, that uh, are really thought up by those who've worked in the system for years and might not have a, a sort of a broader view about what sort of reforms could be uh, possible. Look, I want to thank uh, both you, Tania Seldon, and uh, you, Dr. Ben Lee, for your time and joining me on the podcast. We have covered uh, a lot uh, this morning, Um, but I feel like we've actually only scratched the surface of uh, some areas that that would um, justify um, a much more deeper dive. Um, And I and I hope, and in fact, I'm certain that listeners. uh, we'll get a lot out of this. So I want to thank you both for joining me on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, thank you again. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.